Well, if you have a Bible today, I want to invite you to open to uh, Romans chapter 8. There was a, a name that every once in a while floats around that uh, I'm reminded of his story because it's unique. Um, I'm not good at foreign names, so I apologize if I butcher this, but Hiro, Hiroo Onada um, was a Japanese soldier who fought in the Philippines on behalf of Japan during the Second World War. Uh, for most of the people who fought in the Second World War, that ended in 1945, but for Mr. Onada, it continued for another 32 years because he was in an isolated place, cut off from communication. Um, he never got word from his commanding officer that the war had ended, and so he continued to fight the war. Um, all around the world, the world moved on, but he did not. And so he lived in the jungles of the Philippines, and over the next 32 years, um, he continued to do little ambush raids and little things, and the, the locals knew there was a guy in there that would just was causing trouble, would do things every once in a while. They tried to just keep their distance from him until finally um, they were able to navigate the a connection with, with the folks in Japan to actually send someone, eventually his commanding officer, to Mr. Onada to communicate to him that the war is over. And so, uh, many years later, on March 9th, 1974, uh, the news was delivered to him and he surrendered and he was pardoned uh, because of the circumstances. But he continued to fight a war that was over a long time ago. And I think spiritually, in a lot of ways, we continue to do that uh, in our walk with God, in our wrestle with who we are, with our wrestle with the old self that we're trying to let die and the new self that we're trying to bring into our life. And so when we come to our verse for the day and we think about what is the best version of you, the best version of you is free. And I mean that spiritually. I mean that from a spiritual perspective, you spiritually free. And there is really good news in a verse that uh, hopefully you read a little bit of this week in your Core 52 material from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the war is over in a lot of ways spiritually and how we think about ourselves and how we re react and respond to the world around us. There's just a different outlook that that verse ought to bring to us. This is a great verse because it introduces one of the most profound and encouraging chapters in your whole Bible. It has been called either one of or the greatest chapter in scripture and speaking of Romans chapter 8. The chapter begins with what you just read, there's no condemnation, and you get to the end of the chapter some 39 verses later and it ends with there's no separation because of the love of God. And in between, there's this good news, there is no defeat because of being in Christ. Now, personally, I, I appreciate this chapter a lot. And whenever I go through things and, and I end up back here and I start to read, I'm just reminded of things I need to hear. And I bet you the same is true for you. If you've ever been discouraged or depressed, Romans chapter eight is a beautiful chapter to, as Morris used that word, meditate upon. I don't see how you can read Romans 8 and not be lifted in some way because of what it says. If you struggle with guilt, read Romans 8. If you struggle with sin, read Romans 8. If you're going through trials, read Romans 8. If you don't know how to pray, read Romans 8. If you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, 
read Romans 8. It is so full of so many truths that can change the way that you see the Lord, how you see yourself, and how you see the world around you. Now, Romans 8 is really, really good news at every level. But the reason it's good news is because it comes right on the heels of Romans 7, which contains a lot of bad news, a lot of broken news, a lot of news about our struggle. And so as you look at those two chapters, as they flow together, I just want to read a few verses of of why this is such a big statement for Paul. Because what Paul does in Romans 7 is he really digs into the struggle that exists in your life and in my life. It is a struggle that um, we all wrestle with. Um, It's that struggle of knowing the person I want to be. That little title of the series, my best me, right? Your best you. I know who that person is, but I don't live up to that person very often. Because there's all these little things that just continue to to get in the way and I wrestle with them and, and I struggle with them. And so in Romans 7, Paul is having this conversation about our struggles and our fallenness and our brokenness. And in doing so, he, he kind of taps into this whole idea, well, is the law a good thing then? If the law is the, the law, the rule of God, the, the moral law of God, if, would we be better off not having that if it makes us guilty and, and sinful? But Paul says the law is great and beautiful. It's good to know what God expects of us, even though we can't live up to it. And so Paul gives some examples. Let me just a few, four or five or six verses I want to read from Romans 7 that um, he shares with us about the struggle that we all go through. He says this, what then shall we say that the law is sin? In other words, is the law a bad thing? No, it's not. By no means. Yet if it, not, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, you've had that experience, right? Um, It's the new year. Maybe you said, hey, I'm going to get a little healthier this year. And you said, I'm not going to eat XYZ or I'm not going to drink XYZ, right? I'm going to lay off pop. I'm done with pop because I want to get rid of this little roll that travels with me everywhere I go. My pants don't fit anymore. I want to do something different. So for three or four days, I'm good. But pretty soon... That flesh just kicks in, right? The thing I know I want to do, it's better for me if I do that. But we just struggle with that. And so Paul is saying that, that because I know the right thing, that my flesh has this tendency to take that and say, well, this is right, this is best. And it undermines it, it tears it down. Verse 10 and 11 says this, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment or through God's commandments, deceived me and through it killed me. He goes on later in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. You ever ended your day looking back on that? That's been your day. The very thing I didn't want to do. I didn't want to say that. I didn't want to have that attitude with my family or with at work. I didn't want to be that person the very thing I didn't want to do, I did. That's the thing I hate. It goes on in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do, for I do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And finally, he finishes in verse 22 and following. For I delight in the law of God. In other words, I agree that God's way is the best way in my inner being, down deep inside. 
But I see in my members, my body, my life, my mind, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's that word, that war, that struggle that Paul is talking about between what I know is right and what my body, what my mind, what my life oftentimes becomes. And so he ends with this really troubling statement, this discouraging statement, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." So there's that tension, that struggle, and we all know that, right? We all struggle to live up to the best version of ourselves, uh, and let alone God's best version of us. And so with that chapter, uh, Paul leaves us not feeling very good about ourselves. He leaves us wrestling with an honest evaluation of who we really are. He leaves us wrestling maybe feeling a little guilty, feeling a little overwhelmed, and the word that is prominent in Romans 8 is feels a little condemned. The law says be this, and I am not that. I'm a hundred other things. And so I do feel guilt. I do feel condemnation because I don't live up to the good that I know God wants me to be. But then you shift into Romans chapter eight and there is this dramatic shift from seven to eight. In chapter seven, the word I is used frequently. The focus is on this is who I am, but then you come to eight, it changes. In chapter 7, I is frequently used. The law which condemns us is prominent and sin is dominant. But in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit becomes the frequent topic of conversation. 18 times the Holy Spirit is used in this chapter, more than any other chapter in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament. God's grace and persevering love are prominent, taking the place of the condemning law. And victory over sin becomes the dominant theme And so in this beautiful chapter, we are given this rich picture of this wide-ranging, of the wide-ranging implications of what it means for Christ to have come and done what he has done. And if you have taken that step of faith and surrendering to him, the new life that comes with that and what we should be living out and embracing and and walking in. And so just a quick, we're not going to read all of Romans 8. I thought about doing that, but that would be a long sermon. And I made a New Year's resolution about that. So um, we're going to do something different here. I'm just going to give you the outline of it and trust you to go back and read it later on your own time. But here's just a, somebody has summarized Romans 8 this way. With these big themes, right? Verses 1 through 13 is justification and sanctification. Big words that mean how do I get right with God and how do I become like Christ, right? Those are basically what those terms mean. How do I get forgiven? How do I, uh, what's it mean to be forgiven? And how does God transform my life so that I become more and more like Christ instead of the old me? Verses 14 and 17, the big theme is adoption. That security of knowing that God's my father, and that I am his son, and you are his sons and daughters, right? And so glorification is third, verses 18 through 30, that beautiful section where Paul talks about how our present sufferings do not compare to the future glory that is in store for us. In our weakness, the spirit intercedes for us, and God is going to use, verse 28, that beautiful verse where God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him. In all things, the most awful things in your life, God is at work in if you are his And so there's that beautiful idea that God is glorifying our broken and messed up Romans 7 kind of lives. And then finally, the beautiful part of the end of that, the assurance 
uh, in verses 31 through 39, where he talks about no attack or hardship can separate God's elect from his great love. And so there's this beautiful thing, this beautiful chapter. But I just want to zero in this morning on the first four verses and just encourage us in the truth of them. Um, Paul deals with two very practical issues here, and I think they are key for any of us to become the best version of ourselves. It's the ideas of guilt and sin. <laughs> what do I do with those things in my life? Because we all have guilt, we all, have, we all sin, we all struggle, and though that repeating cycle of sin produces guilt, sin produces guilt, guilt kind of drives me and I sin and I guilt, There's, it, it just always goes with us throughout life. Um, again, in chapter seven, we saw that inner war that he's just talked about. But in chapter eight, Paul turns a corner and he begins to say that Romans seven is not the end of your story. And too many of us live as if that is the end of the story, that I am guilty. I, that's my identity. I've just, I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I can't be. And so too many of us live there. But Paul wants you to move a, a block over to Romans chapter eight and live in a different place. Live with a different picture of who you are in Christ. And even though we may have growth and maturity in our life, you may have been a Christian for a long time, earnestly seeking God, we will still struggle daily with sin, with our flesh, and we will lose battles. And so we have to figure out what do I do with sin and guilt in my life? And we have to understand how to deal with guilt and how to overcome temptation. And Romans chapter eight, those first four verses at least introduce us to that idea. When we do sin as Christians, the enemy comes in to stir up doubts about our salvation uh, and he condemns us and he wants you to feel condemned. He wants you to live unworthy and, and condemned. And he'll say things to you like, how do you know that your sins are really forgiven when you act like that? Uh, true Christians don't do what you just did. You're hopeless. You might as well admit your hypocrisy and claiming to be a Christian and quit trying to be holy. And so he's always trying to trip us up, always trying to discourage us, always trying to remind us that you just can't do this. You're not worthy of all this. And it is those practical things that Paul just lovingly, and I think with a beautiful pastor's heart, just says, hey, for all of us who struggle with guilt and condemnation, here's the good news. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you really feel the weight of Romans 7 in your life, you're gonna have a hard time <laughs> moving to Romans 8.1. It's like, but I know this to be true, but I have to take this, th this statement in 8.1 on the faith that God has spoken clearly in this. That if I am in Christ, there is no condemnation. God does not look at me with a condemning eye and a condemning voice. God does not look at me that way. And so he goes on to talk about how that can be in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So that law of sin and death is that whole, I can't do it, Romans chapter seven theme, right? But the law of the spirit of life, the Holy Spirit comes with Christ and, and it's this new thing that he births within us. Verse three, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Jesus does what I can't do. I, I, my life is the Romans 7 on, 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 on repeat. Jesus comes and he breaks that cycle and says, I'll be perfect for you. I will be a perfect sacrifice for you and your sin. And so you can be in me what you could never be on your own. And that's, that's why that little phrase, in Christ Jesus, is so important. 
so it fulfilled in us. And so he finishes with it. Here's the process. How does that work then? For those who walk not according to the flesh, Romans 7, but according to the spirit, which we're introduced to and talked about in Romans chapter 8. And so I just want to walk through that verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, and look at four phrases, just remind you of their impact and their importance and encourage you to believe the Lord when he says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to live there and I want you to embrace that and I want you to find hope and, and freedom in your life in that. Because too many of us are like that old soldier who are just still fighting old battles that the Lord is saying, I've already fought that battle for you once and for all. Just trust me, surrender to me. And, and we'll get a picture of what that looks like in a moment. So let's look at that. There are four phrases there that I think are important. The first um, is the word, therefore. Um, every once in a while, we'll use this little phrase. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, what should you do? You should stop and see, ask the question, what's that therefore, therefore, right? Um, and so we, it, it's, it's looking back and Paul is trying to draw something, a past argument back into the present. So when he uses that phrase, therefore, he's looking back to everything he's been saying. And if you go back and read Romans probably three through seven in particular, you get this big argument that he's been talking about how we can't save ourselves. We all fall short of the glory of God, but there's this beautiful gift in Christ that, that makes up for everything that we can never be. And through faith in him, we enter into this gift. And so Paul is going back to this argument and um, he talks about condemnation in Romans chapter five, verse 16. He talks about these two places that we will live our life. One of the two, Romans only gives you two categories to live your life in. There's Adam and there's Christ. And, and you're either living in one of those and out of one of those lives. He says this in Romans five sixteen, And the free gift, that's Christ. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. That's Adam. For the judgment following Adam, or one trespass, brought what? It brought condemnation. Sin always makes us feel condemned and unworthy before God. But the free gift that Christ brings, following many trespasses, brought justification. It brought forgiveness. It brought a right standing, a whole standing before God. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, there's also this. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So again, that whole letter of the law that makes us always fall short. We're given this new life for we walk with Christ in the spirit. And so that whole therefore thing is trying to draw out the, the ugliness, uh, the pain of the old life. And he's trying to remind you there is a new way, Okay. Uh, that's the first word is therefore, but then the most important one I think of all, maybe they're all important, but there's this no condemnation phrase. There is therefore now no condemnation. The word no in Greek language is emphatic and it means not any, not one. It's not like, well, on most days there's not condemnation. There is none. You're not going to find that in the presence of the Lord. Now, condemnation is a legal or a forensic term that includes both the sentence and the execution of a sentence for a, a crime done um, or a law broken. Now, in Adam, what we just looked at, we all stand before God as guilty and condemned to eternal punishment because of all the things we've just looked at. We don't live up to God's perfect standard. In Adam, we stand before God guilty. We are on death row awaiting the execution of the guilty verdict that has already been passed against us. We are guilty. We know it. We're just waiting for the execution phase to take place. 
If we die in that condition, we pass into eternal separation from God into second death. But since Christ came and took that punishment on himself that we deserved, in him now we are set free so that we stand before God, not guilty and condemned, but justified, forgiven, acquitted, and with hope, with something to look forward to instead of something to look forward at with dread. And that raises the question, how does guilt fit into the life of a Christian? Where does guilt fit into our lives? Should we feel guilty then if this verse says there's no condemnation? I think there's a place for guilt in our life. Um, This raises that question though. As a believer, should I feel guilty when I sin? If there's no condemnation, should we refuse to feel guilty when we disobey God? And I would argue that properly understood, there's this middle place where guilt serves a beautiful place in your life and in my life. It's a warning light. It's a detective uh, thing that lets you detect that something is not right here that the Holy Spirit uses. You see, the guilt stems from the fact that I have violated God's holy word, his law, his, his truth that was given for my good. And I have disobeyed my loving heavenly father in my arrogance. And rather than loving my savior who went to the cross on my behalf and died for my sins, I have instead loved the sin that put him there on the cross. And so feelings of guilt that lead to genuine sorrow and repentance when I disobey God have an appropriate place in your life. Um, I just read a thing this, this, yesterday, I believe it was, about David. Remember, David sinned massively in his life. And the prophet Nathan came and confronted him. And Nathan, uh, David's response was not, well, what about Saul? He was a worse sinner. Than, look at what he did. In his, he didn't push blame. What we end up with is Psalm 51. It's this beautiful psalm of contrition and repentance and brokenness that God, you are holy and perfect and I have, I have just walked all over your holiness here. Forgive me, show me your grace. And so guilt in that kind of setting is a really healthy thing if it draws you back to your father. But on the other hand, we can push that too far. We have to wrestle with that. I should not feel the guilt of condemnation that stems from the accuser's false charges. When, they, when he says things like, true Christians don't do what you did. You're not even a Christian. So if I mourn over my sin and repent before God over it, then I must accept his forgiveness. And this is where I faith, in faith, I trust what God says. And I answer the accuser with, with Christ and what he has done for me. And so to put it another way, the guilt that I feel when I sin is relational. It's not legal if that makes sense. It's relational as a child to his father. That that video was perfect, right? A little boy stands there admitting, I'm guilty. I've got the marks all over me. I can't hide this. I'm guilty. What do you think dad's going to say? What do you think I should do with this? What should I do with this? It's not, hey, you you, you leave the house. You're done forever. It's, oh, let's make this better. (laughs) Let's not do that again. But there's grace. He's not done in the family. And so my conscience, your conscience, should be tender and sensitive so that when I sin, when you sin, it should grieve us. It should produce a level of guilt within us because I'm doing something wrong and my father loves me and he wants me to do what is right. It should lead me though to not run away from the father, but to run to the father and confess our sin. There is a balance and tension, I think, that depending on your personality or your heart condition, we may wrestle with that. I think that's an important observation, that statement, no condemnation. The third word is now. Uh, That word now, it means at one point there probably was this sense in which we did feel condemned before Christ came. 
or before I met Christ. Either one of those things could be true. Um, but he points us back to a different time, a time when before Christ, that's all we had to look forward to is uh, condemnation and failure and, and not much hope. But now that Christ has come, he has changed that whole story. He has changed everything about it. And as one by one, we have met Jesus and surrendered to him in faith and repentance and, and confessing him as our Lord and being baptized into him and starting to walk this life with him, there's this personal thing that ought to be true of us as well. And so we are now called into this. Um, and finally, there's that little phrase, in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't lay this out for everybody. Paul lays this out for those who have seen Christ for who he is and his offer of salvation and who have responded to that in faith. But I love what this, uh, someone said, uh, I don't remember his name, but it simply says this, the unbeliever has his judgment day ahead of him but the believer has his judgment day behind him. I like that statement. Those are two ways to look at life, isn't it? One I can look forward to standing before God with dread and fear because I know I just don't measure up. No matter how many nice things I've done, tried to do, I know I've not been enough. But in Christ, it's not about what I can or can't do. It's about my faith in him and, and walking with him. And so my Judgment day has already taken place because Christ took that for me and for you. And so we can look forward with some hope, anticipating that glory that is to come. And so the question we have to ask are, are you in Christ Jesus? Have you responded to him in his offer of salvation with your faith in him? I just wanna look though as we finish here this morning. This beautiful offer that there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what should that look like? What does that look like practically? Well, you can continue to read through Romans 8 and Paul gives a lot of really good things in that. Um, but at the end of verse 4, um, there's a little phrase that I, kind of, I think gives us a, a clue as to what does this look like then now? Um, and we touched on it, I think, last week or two weeks ago. He says this, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's about this new walk, right? It's this walking with the spirit of the Lord who is trying to lead us and guide us and nudge us and, and, and direct us in the right ways. It is that daily walk in freedom that is given to us in Christ. And it's my prayer for myself. Um, this past week, um, I started the new year off with a little devotional um, about the fruit of the spirit. And as I've been reading through that, I've appreciated just grabbing a hold of each one of those fruits and just stopping and thinking about how my life would be better, how it would be different if that fruit would grow and trying to look at scriptures that help me to be that. Um, and so in light of what happened in the middle of the week, um, a friend had posted this from Galatians chapter five, which leads up to the fruit of the spirit. So I just wanna finish this morning by reading beginning in Galatians chapter five on down through verse 23, I believe it is. Um, it's from the message paraphrase. And I just, I appreciated the the. the the angle that the message takes with this passage. Here's what it invites us to. This is what this walk with the Lord, this new life looks like. It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. That whole no condemnation thing. He wants to set you free, right? What does that look like then? Just make sure then that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you wanna do and destroy your freedom. Rather, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything that we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. 
That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with the free spirit. There's that same tension from Romans 7 and Romans 8. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competitions, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temper, an an impotence to love or even be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community, and I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard, Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely." So may we know and live in and live out the great promise of Scripture, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we read these two ways of life, one dominated by guilt and failure, one dominated by grace and victory. So we come today, Father, seeking grace and seeking life, seeking Christ. In this moment, we just pray that your spirit would move us. I know your spirit wants to lead. Your spirit wants to forgive. Your spirit wants to restore. Your spirit wants to change. Your spirit wants to do so many things in every one of our hearts and lives. And so, Father, as we've just read, may we come humbly seeking after the fruit of your, of your life, of your spirit. We want to be, I want to be that kind of person. I want to be done with the old ways, the flesh, and all that we see around us as people just act out their flesh and the pain and the destruction and the loss and the division and the hatred that it brings. 
Father, may we, as your people, as kingdom people, may we be known for the fruits of your spirit. And so we ask that in the name of Christ.